This is Oblivion with David Miller and David Overby. If you're listening to Oblivion, it's uh, uh, May 25th, 2020. It's about 90 degrees outside and a little bit humid. Just turned the fan on me. Cool me down a little bit. And, uh, you have that uh, hot tub rolling? <laughs> yeah, you know, this time of year with the solar thermal system, you know, it's usually warmed up by the afternoon just from the sun. So. Well, I was gonna. I was thinking it would be a great way to, uh, let's see, um, like in the evening. When yeah. it cools off outside, and mm-hmm. it would be have the warmth in it from the whole day, and you mm-hmm. just could turn it on, and especially if you've been exercising or something, because yeah. I think last show we were talking about my runs, mm-hmm. and um, about three hours after a run, I think, man, if I could just get into a hot tub right now, and yeah. so I think about. Wouldn't it be awesome if, if one day I uh, I just ran all the way from my place to your place? <laughs> this would be for the listener. This would be like about a third of the way through the entire state, going uh, west to east yeah. in, in Kentucky. All, not almost ten marathons you need to get here. Could do that over a few couple, days, a couple or weeks. Yeah, a marathon a day for ten days. Be dehydrated and so <laughs> and so forth. Uh, how about before I get into the numbers, uh, like just a quick obligatory positive thing? Maybe we can make this a, a segment on the Oblivion <laughs> podcast. You know, Dave's momentary <laughs> optimism, and now for Dave's Fle- momentary fle- optimism. No, no, that fleeting optimism. Fleeting optimism. Fleeting optimism. <laughs> I'll put that down. Or, you know, like obligatory token optimism. <laughs> and now for Dave's token optimistic <laughs> statement. Um, one of the things, one of the good things about this pandemic is, um, I can't notice the deliberate stupidity of a statement like that. Anyway, but it's, it's so typical of how the media has gotten more aggressive in talking about this. I, you may not watch television as much as I do, but there, it means with the Memorial Day and open up the economy, right? The, just the over-the-top moronic optimism is really in your face. Get out there and let's, you know, let's, let's go and, 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 all, and all of this. And so this is the, the ways to have a positive spin on it is to show the ways that how resourceful we are and where online education works and we can make, we can have classes in the fall and uh, you can do all these great things at home and your children can stay motivated and you're not going to drive each other crazy and, <laughs> and all that. So, so my statement for today is the advantage is the uh, culinary expansion. So I've really perfected my omelets. I made an omelet with um, mustard, cheddar, corn, and onion. It was just fantastic. I mean, I've just really perfected the way to cook them. Um, and, uh, I'll just I'll just divulge my culinary expertise just to sort of you know titillate the interest of of the listener. But the key is is that the pan has to be super hot, right? And then when you get the egg in there, in about ten seconds, you put whatever you're going to put in it on there, and then you immediately take it off the heat. 
you take it, you, so you want it super hot, and then you get it right off the heat once it's all come together. And if you wait for a little bit, it's it's cooked, it's come together, but it's not uh, it's not burnt, slightly burnt. And that's I think the big challenge in omelet making is uh, it's not that hard to tell that the thing is still all sort of liquidy and thus not done. But then what you've got to be able to do is get the thing out of the pan and to cook it without having some of it be sort of charred and, you know, tasting a bit like leather. Because if you can cook an omelet, you know, really just right, it is uh, definitely a, a delicious treat. And then there are my uh, crispy potatoes. I've really learned how to do those. I think potatoes are actually challenging things to cook, and you, it's frustrating because you think that you can just cook all these up, up and then throw some potatoes in there and it'll make it even better. But the potatoes are always, you know, either mushy or they're bland or they're not cooked enough, right? So how do you get them to, you know, taste good and crispy and delicious? And so I have that. And then here is the really uh, coup de gras, as one might say, or creme de la creme is the new uh, strawberry banana bread with lemon i'm sorry damn it uh, uh, uh strawberry banana bread orange zest and pecans and i made that yesterday and that turned out to be just incredibly delicious no i think i made that two days ago yeah made it two days ago and it was just it was really good i remember you know you, the first time you make something and you try it you're just hoping it doesn't taste bad i think at least i'm that way so um and it's like, well, it doesn't taste bad. Um, and then I let it cool a little bit, and I think the flavor comes out more on something like this when it's had some time to cool. But it wasn't just the flavor. The thing I've been uh, ascertaining about what made this so delicious is that it was it's nice and moist. It came out really nice and moist this time. So if I can get the proportions right, and I got some of that strawberry juice in there along with the um, – um, the, the mushed up bananas, of course, and then the other stuff is just, the, you know, baking soda, flour, and uh, the butter and egg and so forth. But that turned out really well. So I've been, really been rolling with the uh, with the cooking. Cooking and the rigorous cardiovascular exercise. You know, that's Dave's token optimistic <laughs> statement for the podcast. Well, <clears throat> I, I think that's why, I like, flour is scarce and, and the groceries shells, et cetera, et cetera, is that so many people are cooking for themselves compared to the usual that they're stuck at home, you know. So yep. I think there's a, a lot of, you know, it's got to be a good thing, people increasing their skills and yes. actually doing it for them friggin' self and probably being pleasantly surprised by how good it is compared to what eating out. The, the, the garbage that they, the, just because it's, it's packaged, right? It's all marketing. The, the American culture is all about the trashy uh, glitz and glamour, right? Well, yeah, and there's just, they've been, um, you know, the processed foods, you, the palate has been kind of conformed into liking certain kind of flavors and, and uh kind of liking artificial flavors too, you know. Right, but also I think the... Um, Although I'll have the, to say, kind of bring back to the optimistic thing. I, you know, we were... I was talking with 
Nancy one day while we were eating and just kind of talking about how much culinary, especially what you can get at the grocery store, for instance, um, has improved over the years since I was a kid. I mean, and I what brought up the conversation with her was that I was remembering in the 90s, kind of when I, when I was first cooking for myself a lot, when I was living on my own, uh, right. you know, I would go to the grocery and the Win Dixie, you know, I, I think there's some of them are left in the South, maybe. But uh, anyway, uh, it was a Win Dixie down there, um, I think Second Street, old old Louisville area. Fourth and, Street, I believe. Fourth Street, and, um, and I'm not this, sure. It's been a, 20 years, but anyway. Yeah, that, that sounds right. Um, so anyway, uh, so. Uh, there was this section in the green grocer area that was like world foods, like world vegetables, and so there's like these weird tubers and stuff from Africa, and and <laughs> yeah. you know like odd bananas and stuff, and I, I probably bought some a couple times, but of course like the tubers, you had no idea how to even fucking cook the things, you know. Um, so they had that section for years. I'm sure they hardly ever sold, a, you know, uh, African yam or whatever the hell it was. Um, so that was kind of this early thing. And but now it's just like you've got a, like a whole aisle of like Asian slash Mexican slash this and that. And um, yeah, so you can really experiment compared to like in the '80s. Sure. And stuff. But I also think that we're what we're seeing through this pandemic is is that in a lot of ways that kind of merchandising setup is um is is fake and it it contributes to a lot of really toxic activity that is um is having a very bad effect on on the planet and on honestly uh the the fate of of humanity in the sense that it, it, its ability to live in this, um, in this modern technological way that it does. In other words, being able to put all of this together, having an Asian aisle and a Mexican aisle and a, a sushi set up is, am I, uh, describing what you have in mind? In terms of what you're saying about the grocery scene and all that, well, yeah, I mean, sushi's even more recent, but uh, uh, right, yeah. but that's the thing. It's like if you have, let's say, you have a grocery store in West Kentucky. Like, why am I thinking about sushi? I mean, it would be one thing if I go to the place and it's like, look at all this fresh catfish we have, right? Because there's a lake here and it has it's known for, for catfish, unless the those Asian carp haven't already eaten all of them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you uh, well the the stuff at Kroger I mean uh, I mean it, fish is a problematic thing like uh, meat has its problems but um, at least the stuff in Kroger it's frozen you know it's not actually sure raw they freeze it and ship it in so it's not like it's man being, speaking being of that extent I've got to say I I just uh, I saw the the most horrific image yet. And is saying something when you're talking about um, uh, the American mass production food system, 
right? All of the livestock and the chickens, you've seen that. This was this horrible. I mean, it's really sad. And I'm, I'm a person who appreciates dark humor, and I don't think there's anything funny about this as of the way I'm describing it. But there was an image of chicks, little chicks, and they had been put on conveyor belts. And they're sending them down these conveyor belts like they are objects, right, that are going to be then put into uh, other objects and made into something. Mm-hmm. And it is just, it is so excessively just dehumanizing and hateful and deliberately destructive to life itself that I think that is uh, the really scary thing in terms of thinking of this pandemic as as actually a natural reaction and response against humanity because it's living in this manner that has caused all of this to happen. You know, the, it, the wet markets in China, right? Well, po- possibly, I mean, interaction. Po- well, sure, possibly, but, but one of the more likely explanations, um, but anyway, just the, the idea that, um, that this thing spreads because of this, uh, global, uh, extremely uh, aggressive, you could say psychopathic type of, of uh, human behavior and interaction with the planet, just to kind of think kind of reckless and crazed, you know, and encouraged to be that way by the institutions of power that drive and, and, and control it. You know, get out there and do this and fly everywhere and it must be this way and make sure that um, – Everything requires this, this constant, you know, big motion across incredible spaces uh, by massive amounts of people. I mean, it's one thing to live in a world where it's cool to think that this is possible, right? That if you wanted to plan for it, you could take a trip to China or Japan. You know, I, I was watching uh, You Only Live Twice, the James Bond movie, uh, the other night, and that takes place in, in Japan. And I thought, man, this, wouldn't it be wild and, and wonderful to actually go see this place? And But the idea that, you know, the whole world is supposed to have these billions of people that are moving all over the place uh, in order to live is crazy. And I think a big part of, of the problem and um, how this pandemic spread, and also the inability and the inflexibility of the of the institutions to deal with it. Um, uh, but even if you're not somebody that is always flying all around the world, you do depend on, or you're you're empowering, you're enabling a system that requires this to happen, right? And that gets back to the groceries that if you're going to have an Asian aisle and a Mexican, Mexican aisle and that other, the, the, the tubas, what were those things you were describing earlier? Tubas. The, the African things. Oh, like tubers, like, you know, two birds, like, yeah, yeah. The tubas. Yeah. They are. <laughs> so Eat your tubas. the way Emeril Lagasse would say tuba. <laughs> yeah. My bad. Okay. Okay. So, Sorry. Uh, yeah. But in um, order to have those things, all I'm saying is, and, and I think, I think well, I'm I, correct in this, is that you do, you do have to have um, a, a, a lot of um, mass transit imp- importing things from 
that, that are not locally sourced in order to have all of that stuff. Right. Well, um, to kind of tie into what you're talking about, the chickens on a conveyor belt, um, they, uh, uh, I just got done reading The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. And, oh, wow, yeah, the, from the 1920s? Uh, 1906, actually. Okay, so not um, yeah, and uh, still I should have been better than that. Well, at least I asked. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, um, and it's you know it's centered around the stockyards of Chicago, um, although it's yeah, it's if you haven't read it, highly recommended. Um, um, you know, it's, it centers around this uh, Lithuanian uh, family and mainly this one character. Uh, uh, Yargis, I think, uh, <clears throat> and uh, immigrates from. Uh, and I, kind of the reason that I've somebody was mentioning it on on uh, uh, Twitter uh, in relation to how the meatpacking thing, you know, where the you know it's all immigrants uh, now, and <clears throat> it's kind of interesting. It's gone full circle. I mean, in that time, it was mostly immigrants. It was like. You know, because it was just like, you know, the most incredible, uh, it's really hard to describe. I mean, it's so multifarious how he represents it. But, you know, it's this vast industrial area that uses every bit of a cow or a pig, you know, uh, re- reduces them into their various parts. And, of course, the labor is extremely intense and and uh, they've drive you like a slave and pay you very little and uh you know you're being robbed from every direction and then it, well, it's a good thing things aren't like that anymore <laughs> yeah and the uh it actually resulted in the first like food safety thing because uh well his quote was uh, i tried to write a novel to to hit the public in the heart and and it ended up hitting them in the stomach uh, because there were food safety things that came from it, but just because of the incredible description of all the <laughs> abuses, so you know, horrible it was. The the downer cows that they would mix in with the meat and adulterate it, and uh, oh god, it's just unbelievable. It just goes on and on and on and on. The things that you know. And, and now I am cracking up. I mean, it's just... <laughs> Yeah, and you know. Well, but, uh, so, about and, the, but it's interesting to loop that in because it's like, it, it, you know, there obviously have been some improvements. It's not like this incredible hell hell world uh, that he was honestly describing. I mean, it was pretty fucking bad for people. You know, it was really hard. Uh, you know, jobs were scarce, and you didn't get paid much, and. There were no safety nets whatsoever, and uh, and it's actually the the arc of it was that by the you know after World War II uh, there was such prosperity there in the fifties that that being a meat some working in a slaughterhouse uh, was a fairly decently paid job, and you know it was like unionized or whatever, and uh, it's kind of like most jobs in that period were decent middle-class jobs, right? But now, yeah. now it's gone full circle. It's gone to where it's like, 
the lowest that's what know, I was, paying, and it's immigrants yeah. <laughs> again. Well, that's what I was gonna I was gonna bring up, which is that uh, sure you you can't necessarily deny that on the whole things in 2020 aren't better than they were in 1906, but you also have to look at the trajectory of where things are now. And it's all about what kind of time frame that you want to look at it in. And of course, the time frame that you choose in which to look at it is then going to inform what you say the truth is. So if you just look at it that way that, well, you know, since the beginning of time and, you know, prehistoric times, I'm sure life in some ways was even more brutish than it was in 1906, right? So, but if you look at it, what were things like in 19, you know, 56 in terms of the economy and working conditions and jobs and the culture in general? And I think a big thing about it in it during that time period compared to now is that science and education were a formidable influence in the culture uh, during that time period. Of course, my argument, my thesis is that that all led up to the counterculture, right? Because a well-educated society over multiple generations is also going to be a, a questioning society and a rebellious society to some degree. And it's, it's going to always want to be exploring and moving forward. It's not going to be terribly interested in just repeating the status quo for the sake of saying, well, it you know got us from here to here, so just keep doing it. Um, well, and, and, and so then it, then, it, then it had to get shut down. But I think the last time that, that America was really all in on science was to get to, to was to win the space race, to get the first human being on the moon, mm-hmm. which we did. You know, we, we beat the uh, Soviets. Yeah. Although we beat the that, cosmonauts to the moon. Although then it's been. Although that. Sure. Gener- let me tie that into. Uh, yeah, sure. That, that one part into. Uh, you know, there was just the anniversary of the armistice, or is that right? Eighty-five years, or uh, you know, the end of World War Two in the uh, European. Oh, right. And yes, a victory and, in Europe. Day. And yeah. you know, and there's this neglect of the Soviets and all this, right? That they're the mm-hmm. ones that really want it, right? They're the you know they sacrificed thirty million people and. You know, uh. right. We beat them, you know, and yeah. that and that gets directly into the Cold War, where uh, Republicans, I think, have dominated American politics for the last fifty years, uh, in many ways, by um, making it look like any kind of liberal American politics was uh, just being weak and capitulating to Stalin and to the, to the Soviets uh, at the end of, of World War II, specifically with the agreement that basically divided Europe into the uh, East and West, the West being capitalist and the East being communist. And really the pinpoint of that was, you know, Berlin, East Berlin, West Berlin, East Germany, West Germany, because Germany had to be broken up. But the, the role that the Soviets did play in, you know, defeating Hitler. I also, though, partly look at that as that's really, you know, where Hitler defeated himself because that's where his, that's where his mania 
got the you know got the better of him. Like it, mm-hmm. it's the it's the hubris of fascism. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, fascists are lazy and incompetent. You know, they may love fighting. Well, I, I mean, he get I mean, to be fair, he did say he was going to do all that stuff, right? In Mein Kampf, he talked about he's well, he's you know, he just that and the other, and it included invading Russia and making them all slaves, and you know, well, but that's, so, but that's you know, so he just could not help himself. It had to be that right. way. So you know, he could have you know at at any point if he had just said, wow, you know, I've really expanded the empire and I'm running all of this. I mean, uh, but his decision to start uh, into into Russia. Well, Well, at the same time, I mean, at the very least, he he should have waited. Right. I mean, it was like he had this armistice or whatever that pact was with Stalin, you know, when he went into Poland. Right. You know, the Russians took eastern Poland when Hitler moved in. Yeah. So, I mean, and they said, no, you're not going to come any further than, you know, we'll take half of Poland, you'll take the other half. But that was already the Soviets, I think, in a lot of ways, being smart and saying, you know, we'll... Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, it was trying to stave it off. And, uh, you know, I guess it was a good thing that, you know, maybe if they had waited, they could have done it. It's hard to say, you know. Uh, right. I mean, it was, just, such a, it was such a big country. It was just like Napoleon's thing. You know, it was just like. But another thing that you know, Americans, uh, American propaganda about World War II ignores is that when it comes to the Western theater of World War II, uh, the British were really the lead in that most of the way right up until the end, because they kind of exhausted themselves by 1944, but that's when America really kicked in and started to to dominate, right? I mean, D-Day is when the tide of the war definitely turns and and the Americans take over. So, but the British were the ones through the Battle of Britain and the the Royal Air Force getting the better of the German Air Force. This is all from what I've read from uh, Churchill. And I think He's a well, trustworthy source on World well, War II. So I don't know. I mean, trustworthy to a certain extent, but you know, he's got to oh, be sure extremely bigoted. <laughs> you know, chauvinistic in a- in the role of the civilized, you know, uh, colonist empire, Britain. You know. Yeah, but he was, but he was definitely really smart, and he writes well, and uh, I think there is his his general argument that the big mistake was to think you could capitulate to, to Hitler. Uh, and that's why everything turned out to be such a tragedy. I think that that is accurate. I well, think what, is but I mean, what, right, would he, but, what would he have done different? I mean, well, you, he would have uh, gone to war with, with Germany, like uh, yeah. sooner. I mean, he would have done something almost like what the Soviets did uh, in taking Eastern Poland when uh, when Hitler went went into Poland. Like, not just sat there and done absolutely nothing. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's what Churchill kept saying about Hitler in the in the late in the late uh, uh, in the in late thirties because this this buildup happens. Uh, it wasn't just like everything was fine and then they invaded Poland uh, in September 1st, 1939, and then, oh, there's a problem. He had already taken Czechoslovakia. He had taken Austria. (laughs) Those are two 
countries, and they he just took them and said, "Well, they're really part of Germany, and we you know so we we can do this." And uh, you know Churchill was saying, "You can't let people do this," and this was already in violation uh, from what had happened in World War One, where the agreement was is that Germany was going to be demilitarized and that it couldn't just start building up its military again. And of course, they started doing that before they made these invasions. And of course, once um, you know, yeah, but I mean, the, to to be fair, I mean, it, I mean, after World War One, there wasn't exactly enthusiasm uh, <laughs> to do that again. You know, I mean, most to do to, to do war to you know another war. You know, uh, well, right, but that's that's Churchill's whole point is that it could have been avoided, right? Like as soon as um, the mistake was made in the in the lead up to the invasion to Poland. Right. Because by the time that happened, uh, Hitler had really, you know, built a a monster. Right. He, he had because part of it is that he was able to seize everything that Czechoslovakia and Austria had. So he added two countries worth of their military resources well, and their and another thing you got to re- put into account, though, is that, you know, many of his class, the upper class. Uh, of England, you know, or a bunch of fascists to start with and loved uh, German and were German themselves. I mean, the royal family was, you know. Sure. You I'm, know, not, so, I'm not, I'm not, and so, and I the, mean, you had this element in World of, War, know, we should be gentlemen well, and, you know. All World War Two, I think, is the culmination of, of a very violent and bloody continent, right? That's always been artificial and pompous about how civilized it is. Right, right. Just be, and and that's sort of the ultimate racism because we're white. It's impossible that we could be thugs and punks. So just to so, go back, to, go back to the uh, space thing that you said, which I think was an error, and you know that we won the space race. Really, the only thing that we did first was the moon, putting men on the moon. No, well, I'm they not did pretty much everything else. All right, they did you, first. First satellite, first man in space, first uh, double, you know, first spacewalk, first black person, first woman, first. <laughs> they basically did everything, but you know, so in the sense they won it, you know, really. But uh, oh, sure. I mean, and that would be that's a that's a perfectly compelling uh, a debate. I mean, I was just pointing out that we did beat them to the moon, and in that yeah. sense, I think we did get we. When, I, when I'm talking about because erasing, you're a capitalist pig, you always have to put it like you're, you know, well, America you're, number one. You're, you're you're damn right, you know. And you know, deep down, we all know as Americans that's what we are. You know, I tell you what, I've got to say right now, I just saw the most beautiful. I'm still looking at it, most beautiful cardinal. It's got a yellow belly, if I'm not mistaken, and it just mm. flew away. Oh, that might it, be a that may be a uh, summer tanager. Summer tanager. Does it, it look like a cardinal on the top? It was, it was does, red. Does it, have, did it have a peak? Um, did it I have think a, so. Did it have a crown or whatever, like the you know little cardinal logo? Well, the best way I can describe it is it looked exactly like a cardinal, except the belly was uh, gold, okay. yellow. Okay, it's, it's female then, probably. And it just flew away. But man, it was a beautiful, and the light was perfect on it. Like if I could have gotten a picture of it, but you know, it's a bird; it flies around. <laughs> but what? But no. But let me just follow through on uh, for a moment. The idea of a race, I think you're talking about distance. And the way I look at the whole history of the space program is that from the very beginning, it was always about who was going to get to the moon first, 
So it's kind of like the NCAA tournament to make another capitalist reference. It's like, sure, you win this game and you get to the second round Sweet 16, but it's ultimately about, you know, who wins the, wins the championship. So it's just like, well, because America was always pretty short to, to follow after the Soviets did something. Like, Gargarian went into space on April the 12th, 1961. Alan Shepard went up on May the 5th. 1961. It's, but, you know, but, three but, weeks different. But didn't orbit, man. But, but he didn't Loser. orbit. But so <laughs> when was the first U.S. orbit? Do you know that? It was soon after that, I think. I mean, not too but long. Can you can you tell us when exactly? Well, you, surely you remember. Don't, don't you remember? All of course that? I do. Okay. February uh, 1962. I want to say February the 20th. I don't remember the exact date. But that's within 10 months of Gargarian doing his three orbits. John Glenn did his, his orbits. Uh, but they were very much on parallel uh, progressions. And that's, that's part of the, the arrogance of the American mind is that it just, it, it, it's so poorly educated that it has, it has such a distorted view of like the world. Like there are these other countries that are also highly accomplished they basically did the same things that we've done and did them before we did them and did them better than we did them. The pandemic is a, yet another example. I mean, South Korea is not communist. You know, the, the whole point is that South Korea is the total opposite of North Korea. You know, then South Korea is, is leading the world in, in dealing with the contagion, you know, and it has all of the bad things going for it. I mean, Americans are always saying, oh, we're such a big country and this and this and this. I mean, being a big country has been to our advantage, right? Because much of America is not densely populated. Wouldn't you agree with that point? Yeah, right. So, But I think that South, Car- uh, South Carolina is <laughs> a country. And in South Carolina, they're, doing, they're leading the world in a- <laughs> with cotton plants. <laughs> sending off the coronavirus. Now, in, in, I hear uh, cotton in, plants are really good for that. <laughs> in South in South Korea, um, where, uh, where they've got those cool phones, and they, uh, what else they have? They've got that well, weird music. They, they they I think they they lead the world in in, in testing. They're testing right. uh, contact tracing and strategic isolation, but they they also have a, a a very dense population. Like Seoul is extremely densely populated, and it's a it's a small country. So this, the fact that there's a lot of people that live there and it's a small country and it's also right, right below China, you know, and China has um, like 3 billion people. Isn't that right? Like China has more people than the United States. <laughs> I, don't like think by, it's three, I don't think it's three yet, but it's, it's way over a billion. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's probably be a billion and one point. Yeah. I think oh. China has a billion. America has like 326 million. Right. Um, so you've got in here New York numbers. Speaking of highly populated areas. Oh yeah. Well, um, is that death numbers or just the uh, curve? Well, it was basically more a point that I, I wanted to make that if you were to sub- subtract the New York numbers from the United States overall numbers. Uh, I think it would show two things, and you can tell me if I'm if I'm in error here, and if I if I am, then I'll uh, figure out what the correct 
uh, perspective is. You'll start screaming and yelling until the, you get well, your way. Things, first of all, a significant proportion, uh, a significant percentage of the overall infections of deaths in the United States come from New York. Right. Yeah. Right. So you could say that the overall numbers in the United States are somewhat distorted. They're not, they're overall for most of the country, not as bad as it looks because so much of it's concentrated in New York. Now that's relevant because you have to criticize Cuomo and de Blasio for that. You can't just only criticize Trump for everything. I mean, I think Congress should be criticized. Um, everybody should be criticized. It's been an overall failure. The culture of the population should be criticized. Um, but, um, um, but you have to definitely criticize Cuomo and de Blasio. But then the other thing is this. The flip side of it is that New York is the only place where the curve has significantly gone down, mm. right? Where the numbers recently have significantly and consistently gone down. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the rest of the country, that has not happened. The numbers have only plateaued. Right. Yeah. So um, that means that um, you're, you're not really getting it under control. Right. You you in order to in order to stop the thing, you've got to see the numbers going down. You plateau is not good enough. I mean, it's better than it continues to go up. But you the, the real significance, I think, is that the, the difference between the numbers plateauing and the numbers going down is the difference between is there any scientific basis for saying it's now safe to reopen the economy? Well, I mean, it all depends on what that means, right? I mean, just just leaving it, of course it's not if you just opened it right. I mean, within two or three weeks, it would be just spiking, you know, everywhere. So right. you definitely can't do that. And I don't, I don't think anybody is seriously saying that. I mean, maybe uh, some of nut job, I don't know where, but... Uh, you the people that hung Bashir in effigy in Frankfurt? Did you see that? <laughs> no, I didn't. What happened? Oh, my God, yeah. The, a bunch of, uh, you know, pro-gun people went to Frankfurt yesterday, you know, to celebrate the Second Amendment. And at some point, fire uh, Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir in effigy, like on a tree near the state capitol. Awesome. Good luck. You know, like... Yeah, like this is this this is what everybody had in mind when they said let's be a free country and have <laughs> and have this constitution uh -huh. and have these constitutional rights, you know. I hope I hope they shot their guns up in the air like wild uh uh Yosemite Sams. I actually oh, wow. get a little surprised that hasn't happened. I, you know, <laughs> why not? I mean, goddamn it, you're right. Well, I mean, <laughs> you um, you heard about all the stuff in uh, in, in Michigan, right? Well, I mean, I, you know, I heard about a lot of armed quote protests, um, but 
did they hang her in effigy or the um the the, the governor? governor yeah uh no i don't i think kentucky gets uh gets credit on that one <laughs> kentucky wins on that one first day to come up with that idea yeah. <laughs> shit we can't we can't even say it at least there's mississippi this time we did it first okay Lord. So uh, you, you said Greg Fisher interview with Al Sharpton. Yeah. And I was trying to find um, a replay of this on the internet and I just somehow couldn't get the right combination of names and terms uh, into the, um, into the search engine, but I caught the end of an interview with Al Sharpton, the host of Politics Nation on MSNBC, uh, you know how who Al Sharpton is, right? So mm -hmm. um, you have a general idea. Yeah, you know, a pretty smart, articulate, and I think he's a, a Baptist preacher, so he has his own show. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, Sharpton is is mm -hmm. uh, is black, and yeah. so uh, you know, uh, issues dealing with black people and the racism of American society are a regular part of this programming so greg fisher the mayor of louisville is on and uh, sharpton is interviewing fisher about the shooting and killing of brianna taylor who uh the louisville police did a what i think they call a, a no-knock warrant where they can just explode into your home and uh fire away if in, invade like. is now one one of the really good points that's been made is uh you know there hasn't we haven't uh seen any body cam footage of anything that's happened right. and it's right. really hard to believe and, that if, if and, something this but serious they might not they might not because i heard that they went in that was the reason the guy shot at him because they just broke in and they were in street clothes so um i don't know but I haven't heard about body cams. Well, but if there aren't any any body cams, then there isn't any real legitimate way to defend right, yeah. what happened, is there? Right. Well, yeah. And not to mention, well, in I the first place, it's all totally indefensible. Like th this is this is not an acceptable form of law enforcement. Well, I was kind of amazed that the police chief resigned. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you well, know it must how be pretty, this, must be pretty serious. You yeah, know. but well, but you know how uh, American politics is—is is, is that uh, this has gotten some national attention. The guy's been there forever anyway; he probably wasn't going to stay much longer, so he mm -hmm. steps down. And guess who's going to take his place? You know, mm -hmm. probably a uh, mm -hmm. a Hispanic woman who's a little mm -hmm. bit younger, but will be exactly like he is and has mm -hmm. exactly the same. Right. Um, mindset and it's going to execute exactly the same kind of uh, policy in terms of, right. you know, wacko, um, mm -hmm. super aggressive policing, which is what you get in cities like Louisville. And I think at this point, pretty much everywhere in, in the country, uh, I'd like to think, I think somewhere, I think in some places out West, they, uh, the culture, you know, they just, they're not into that and, and they're being smarter about how they, deal with um maybe maybe <laughs> sure i mean there's nothing really at all well you know but that, about it made me american criminal it, justice it made me think of cops the you know the tv program 
and kind of how it infected so much of American culture with this cop worshiping. And it really infected them with this like break in thing, you know, the dramatic mm-hmm. break into the drug bust, you know, where they hammer in the door and go in with guns, that, you know, not blazing, but, you know, screaming and yelling and pointing their guns and, you know. It, popular, right. it made it normalize it in people's minds that that's how the cops should act, you know. Right. Uh, and uh, and every other, you know, let's not even get into all the just to, just about every movie you see has to have some gun violence, you know, American movie that is. Yeah. I yes, you have a good point there. I mean, there there are some. I guess there are some Hallmark films and some uh, Meryl Streep movies where I don't think we see firearms. But uh, but in general, you're you are correct. I mean, um, yeah. if Denzel Washington's made a movie that you know doesn't involve guns, um, I can't think of one. Uh, but then there's also that makes me think of Joe Biden, right? That the black communities got to be pro-democrat mm-hmm. because of the civil hey, rights act and hey jack you ain't black if you don't know who you're supposed <laughs> for sure and then and then but the whole thing with biden being the author of that 1994 crime bill that was just all about mm-hmm. this super aggressive we're going to cram people into the prisons we're going to and, and you, we're going to amp up and, this and you, drugs. And, and, and you hear about that all the time on msnbc right they really bring that up a lot. Oh, sure, right, yeah. Well, I bet even Al, Sharp, I bet even Al Sharpton does it because they wouldn't let him keep us, you know. Well, you get, they're talking about the network that had uh, Chris Matthews saying that Bernie Sanders was like Adolf Hitler, and that um, <laughs> and that the Bernie Sa- yes, yeah, I remember, yeah. And it, and it got Matthews to, to, to go away, but that should give you an idea. I mean, that's a pretty hardcore right-wing network when you've got somebody like that having his own show. I mean, well, it can't I mean, just appa- be apparently that now he's, only got he's like, like that and the rest of them are like that. I mean, and the thing with you – yeah, go ahead. You watch it quite a bit. Um, For amusement, I want everybody to know. I don't watch <laughs> well, it. Well, I mean – So they can tell – I, I think I it's good, it good that you – yeah, right, yeah, yeah. And anyway, I mean, I'm sure you one thing I was thinking is that, you know, how does that, you know, the liberals now, this liberal network, isn't it like they've got like 20 FBI, XCIA, X, you know, army, you know, people that are commentators now. It's like these fucking people are on there all the time. Um, well, I here. would that wouldn't surprise me. But that uh, that's all about that, that policy of getting granular in the society as a way to to take it over and that's why i think we had the iraq war we had the iraq war what do you mean mean by granular to as as a way to take over a country right that you ultimately don't do it this is what petraeus i think figured out that you can't do it with just guns and bombs you know you you have to just get into the the fabric of the society and you have to get everywhere you have to infiltrate it everywhere mm-hmm. um basically you have to be like a virus you know that's how you get in and you take o- and take over a country and and that's what's happened with all of our institutions right there is no leftist anything right uh you know thinking institutions uh subculture 
political party, network, nothing. University, department, nothing. I mean, you have gender studies, you have uh, transsexual studies, you have African-American studies, women's studies. Uh, Do you have leftist studies? No. You you don't. I mean, you, you don't have any... Uh, consistent lens on the world in terms of just utter and complete destruction and domination of everything around you as the one and only way to live. There can be no critique of that. But anyway, uh, to bring it back to MSNBC and and, and Chris Matthews, I mean, um, you're you're definitely a hardcore right-wing network to, if you, have somebody like that on your on your program. He can't just be the only one who's like that. And the thing is, I, I would say that MSNBC is certainly more accurate than a network like Fox News. But accuracy can still be inadequate if it's just very narrow in how it looks at things. And the thing with people like Rachel Maddow is, you know, she will only talk about just a narrow range of of uh, of topics that she, by ignoring all of these other things, like America having the number one prison population in the world, that she never talks about that. None of these people ever talk about it. They never bring up the 1994 crime bill when they're talking about Joe Biden. But of course, with Bernie Sanders, they wouldn't shut up about this 1985 interview about Sanders saying that he thought it was good that Fidel Castro had a literacy program and healthcare for Cuba. And and so that was really bad. But the fact that Joe Biden authored the 1994 crime bill that put um, all of these black people in the prisons and put, you know, Americans in general, um, stuffing them into, into these prisons uh, is never talked about. And the fact that people like Maddow ignore that topic um, is is a is a very effective way of being a right wing propagandist. We're just going to ignore these things. Let me give you a really good example of of uh, what I'm talking about specifically with Maddow. Now, about a year ago, Maddow ha- had an interview with Dan Rather. You know who uh, he is, right? He was uh, the anchor of CBS News for a while, mm-hmm. and. Um, Rather, of course, is older than than Maddow, and they were talking about Martin Luther King because it was Martin Luther King Day. And twice, Rather emphasized to Maddow that Martin Luther King stood for not only being against racism, but he also stood up for economic justice, and he was was anti-war. He was against the Vietnam War. And rather made it a point to say that it was at that moment when King uh, was not willing only to be about fighting racism, but he King was going to start talking more and more about economic justice and protesting the Vietnam War. That's when the media began to ignore him. And both times that Rather brought this up to Maddow, she completely dropped it. She would just go straight back to the issue of racism. 
So if, if I'm making sense here, what I'm trying to point out is that these people are talking about these popular issues, and I think it, what have become these cliche issues of race and gender as a way to keep a discussion of economic justice and war and militarism and permanently class, and out class, um, and yeah. class, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I would tie that back into economic uh, justice, but yes, uh, class being ignored because, of course, class is the thing that Doesn't unifies, <laughs> unifies everybody, right? And when you're talking about a 1% economy, like you can keep talking about diversity, you know, we're different because of this and we're different because of that and I'm privileged because I'm white and this means this and that means that and this is this person's problem and it's this group that it's this group's fault that this happens. But if you look at it in terms of class, when you have a 1% economy, it means that 99% of us have something very important in common, right? Which is that none of us have enough money, you know, or we're way too dependent on money to be able to live and survive. Right. Now it's too much of a problem. Now it's just, it's getting in the way of us being able just to be human beings and live. Um, and that's something that we have in common. You know, we're not rich. We don't benefit from the way the system works. We are at a disadvantage. You know, we're losing, we're getting taken advantage of, you know, we don't have enough. It's the, uh, the, the biggest, you know, the, the biggest uh, labor issue in the pandemic is without question that it's the low pay workers that are keeping the country alive, that are doing the vital work of the population, right? The, the people that are shipping the food and stocking the shelves and having to be in these places where these, uh, some of them, you know, total freak idiots that, you know, think their constitutional rights are being violated because they have to wear a mask when they go in to go shopping. Um, you know, that's. <laughs> uh, here's another topic. Suits in the lobby of the North Tower. Yes. The idea that, um, you know, America's poor response to the pandemic is um, it's just it's more of the same. And it's, it's always, uh, this is the latest repetition of, of the pattern where the government fails to protect us. Oh. And I don't know if you remember or not, but when, uh, when the attacks of 9-11 happened, the, I, I think, well, I'm not sure, the, whichever, the first tower that was hit, right, the people in the second tower Right. saw what happened, you know, up close, many of them, and, and felt it, right? And so what, what did everybody in that second tower do as soon as that first plane hit the first tower? Yeah, the first plane didn't, was real high and didn't do right. as much damage, so it lasted longer. Right, uh, so it was the, the second, second tower right. that right. got hit was the first one to fall. Right which I think was the, was the North tower. But anyway, I, I, I don't want to get distracted by that question. Cause I don't, I don't know for so, sure, but the point is this. So then the after first the tower, first, the people that the were in the tower, first tower were like, we got to get the fuck out of here if we can. All right. You know, well, sure. Um, but the people in the second tower, 
that had not yet been hit. Right. All right. Are you with me? Yeah. The right. people in that tower were also getting out of there, mm-hmm. which of course makes sense, right? I mean, right. that's just a basic intuitive mm-hmm. human survival. Now, this is the, this is a fact. There were people in these suits in the lobby of that tower telling them to go back into the elevator and go back up to their offices. Hmm. Did you know that? Well, I, um, yes, I, I've never, I've never heard that, but yeah. And there's a, there's this horrible conversation between a son who's, you know, getting ready to die, talking to his dad on a cell phone saying, you know, why did I listen to them? Because he had gone down, he had gotten into the lobby, mm-hmm. but there were all these people. And the argument was, no, oh, it'll be safer if you go back up, because if you go out, you know, you could get, you could get hit by you know, mm-hmm. some of the people that are jumping out of the tower. But of mm-hmm. course, that's just, of course, you've got to get the hell out of there, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, the odds that you will step right where someone's going to fall and type of even squish you are far, uh, you know, are just not pertinent to the fact that you are in a place where there mm-hmm. has just been an, a, a huge explosion and a major attack, and you you should get a, away from that place oh. because every person in that tower did the same thing, which makes sense. Nobody intuitively responds to that. Oh, there's an explosion. You know what I'll do? I think I'll just stay exactly where I am. Or maybe I'll just go even closer to it. Of course, you always like move away from danger. Well, you know, I mean, I, on the other hand, I mean, it was kind of like we heard it in real time on the like radio. We were listening to the National Public Radio, and we were heading to go to work. It was when I was working with my brother, Alan, in Louisville. And, uh, you know, first was the news that, a plane hit the first tower. Well, I mean, it was the assumption. You, I, I didn't think terrorism, you know, I thought it was an accident because it's actually, you know, it happened to the Empire State Building uh, once in the past. Right, but I think that happened possible. at night and with fog. But, right. but sure, anyway, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. so, I mean, I, I could see how some people would be like, you know, it's just uh, it was an accident. It didn't hit this building and, you know, uh, didn't necessarily think it was know that it was going to you know collapse, uh, which a different kind of building it might not have collapsed. But uh, anyway. right, but the problem for the people in the in the second tower wasn't that the first tower collapsed; it was that the second tower was hit. You know, pretty much right after everybody got back mm-hmm. up. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what I'm saying is that I don't really believe that the people in the lobby that were telling everybody to go back up were um, looking out for their best interest. I mean, I think it was a coordinated attack mm. and that those people, it, they, it was, that was a way to get more people to die. Uh, it, so how do you tie that into the um, current situation? The, well, just once again, there, there doesn't seem to be any real, motivation to uh, prevent the, the largest number of people from in the United States from, from dying that could die. You know, all of these states have opened back up and then there are plans to start, you know, I mean, they, they haven't opened in the sense that they completely back to normal. Right. I mean, well, I mean, but there's a partial reopening. 
but you, but I mean, you, a reopening is a reopening. I mean, come on, you know, like you, once you say the restaurants can actually have some people inside, I mean, you're going to have people out in public. So, I mean, it, it doesn't matter that much that they won't be in these buildings exactly the same way that they were before the pandemic, but people are going to be out and, and, and circulating. And I mean, then you're going to have, you're always going to have these people. <laughs> Did you see the footage of the people at, at Daytona beach? <laughs> no, is like that, is a that, bunch of them that stopped in the, yeah. Like from yeah. yesterday, yeah. you know, a bunch of them, mainly younger people, they just stopped in the middle of the highway and had a impromptu party and they were out in the streets and of course <laughs> there was a, no they social had a street, distancing. They had a street orgy. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, you know, they had their clothes on, but it was just, you know, they were just doing exactly what, you know, people have said for two months now not to do, you know, like you either, if, if you're going to be around other people, you know, you want to be around them in small numbers. And I also think they've, there's been some significant, data in terms of um, <clears throat> you're 19 times more likely to get infected uh, indoors than outdoors. Mm. So there's definitely something about being, you know, indoors with, you know, multiple people for an extended period of time that raises the risk of infection. Yeah. That's why I think airplanes are, are going to be one of the hardest hit industries because I don't see how, I mean, mm -hmm. if there's a perfect example of you're going to have these people pretty close to each other and they're going to all be breathing the same air. Mm -hmm. And what can you do? You're going to say, oh, I'm kind of freaking out. <laughs> I've been here 30 minutes. The statistics say if I'm here another 15 minutes, uh, I could get infected. You're on a plane, you know, I mean, you're in the air. You can't, you you can't can go anywhere. You can still fly, can't you? I mean, it's not shut down. Well, you can, but... but, but well, uh, what are the well, rules right now, do you know? Or? Well, they're supposed to make it, I, I think, think where... Yeah, where you don't... Uh, you have um, the middle aisle supposed to be open, and you have people far away, but there have been... What a surprise, right? Plenty of pictures of people inside planes, and they're all packed in there. Mm. Right. Like we're all little chicks going down the conveyor belt. <laughs> <laughs> it's not funny, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just so sadistic and and cruel, you know, the just the, the most innocent image, you know, the cute little chicky that that should be, you know, just frolicking around in the grass and the sunlight with the, you know, the mother hen nearby and if there's, you know, everything is, it's, can just walk around and can be a chick and grow into a, a chicken. And then eventually it can be uh, terminated and, you know, eaten. But, you know, terminated. But it can be done in a way um, that is, uh, you know, relatively healthy. You know, this is part of the, the food chain. It doesn't have to be kill as many of them as you can, that there's just something all like, um, I don't know, man, I was reading something about how like, turkeys are injected with so much um, growth hormone that they're obese and uh, that they really suffer. And um, 
Yeah, I mean, they're, they're like these freak animals that, like, their breast is so big they can, can't can really get up, <laughs> you know, get around. So, yeah, it's totally weird. So, uh, had, uh, I guess you could call that science. You've got science will always be a loser. Well, yeah, that, that in some ways we get back to what I was saying earlier about the space program, and I think since we beat the Soviets uh, to the moon, which again, I, I take to mean that means winning the space race, because there was a race to get from, you know, start, starting point to finish point, like the Soviets were faster out of the gate, that Americans won the race, that'd be a good way to put it. Uh, but that's basically the same thing. I mean, I, I think that no matter what, and it has to do with these decisions to, to reopen the economy. I mean, I think that it doesn't, there's no motivation other than financial. And I mean, there's no scientific basis at all for these reopenings, partial as they may be, at least in the official sense. Well, I, yeah, I, I definitely think it has to be open to a certain extent. Um, I mean, people have to survive. I mean, they're in lieu of being supported in a socialist way and, uh, um, but don't you think don't even, that there, I mean, it's not, it's to say that, um, we shouldn't reopen right now is not the same thing as saying never reopen the economy. I mean, I think that's been a sort of a misrepresentation of the, uh, scientific point of view, which is, is sort of proves my point of, you know, science will always lose. Like no matter what, it'll be interpreted in this very, abrasive you mean this you said no saying like today is may the 24th 2020 and it's too early to reopen like if we would get our act together and learn from south korea and singapore and germany and get this widespread large-scale testing contact tracing and strategic isolation program in place and do it nationally mm and then do the other attendant policies that would really effectively contain and and uh, control the virus, control the spread of the virus, because you, you have a way of actually stopping um, cluster in, in infections, right? I mean, as soon as somebody tests positive, you can very quickly get other people tested and then get those who test positive out of the population, out of the general circulating population. That will actually control the virus. And if you could do that, think of it this way. Let's say uh, you were thinking of taking a road trip, you know, like you've been self-isolating for two months and you think, well, God, you know, am I just going to sit in my home forever and never leave? <laughs> never. Um, and you think, okay, no, I'm going to go visit these two people. Well, if we had the kind of system set up that I'm talking about, you know, the people I was going to go visit could get tested before I went to visit them. You follow me? <laughs> yeah. And if their test came back negative, if I went in to go visit these two people and I've been self-isolating for 60 days, mm -hmm. and that, it would be and impossible that for me to get infected, right? right? And unless you entered 
another person into the into the group of two people. But I'm saying no. I'm just going to go out to you know somebody's farm. There are two people that live there. They have been tested. They're negative. You know, I know I haven't been around anybody for two straight months. I go and visit him. There's no way I can get infected. Just impossible. Could, can't happen. But it, we don't have that, you know. And then the other thing that could happen is, you know, I could go do something like that. I could maybe be around six or seven people and be around them outside. And then what could I do? Well, when I was done visiting them, I could then myself, I could go get tested, you know. With no no problem, just like getting a tank of gas, like that's not a problem. We make three meals supposedly for 326 million people every single day. We could have the kind of thing I'm talking about. These other countries have it. They have they've had it for six weeks. But who's going to pay for it? Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, why actually just do what we need to do when we could, you know, get into the same argument about that we have about everything else. Like there's nothing different about this. (laughs) There's nothing different about a historical pandemic that is easily the worst, you know, most uh, horrifying and uh, just crazy thing that, uh, that, that has happened to the living population. You know, we've never seen anything like this. So, yeah, speaking of horrors, uh, before we get into our predictions, uh, sure. what's what are the death? What is this week's death toll? Oh, all right. Um, <laughs> let's see. I had to go over to the uh, energy station to keep the phone charged, so I was able to successfully do that. So um, now I'm going to make my way back to my. Um, information sector <laughs> uh okay so the numbers um let's take a look at this on uh, may the 23rd which was yesterday in the united states um there were 96,582 deaths that's nearly a 10,000 death increase from the 15th of May. So that's eight days. So in a week, you're getting close to 10,000 deaths. Uh, There were nearly, uh, let's see, how does this go? There were nearly 200,000 new cases in um, during that time. Worldwide, 35,000 people died. But think about those numbers in this eight-day period, all right? Um, Worldwide, I'm looking at these numbers, making sure that that this is, um, um, yeah, this would be, um, 35,000 people died in the world. Nearly 10,000 died in the United States. What do those numbers tell you? I mean, that's a third of the deaths of the, in the world are happening here. We don't have one third of the world's population. All right, so uh, let's uh, do our predictions. Well, just to do um, 
a quick aside here. I can't finish this podcast without bringing this up because it happened yesterday on Facebook, and I think it's great. So I, can I read you a post that I made and then the short thread of comments that follow, and then I'll make uh, – I'll have something to say about it or I, I, okay. I really actually, I want to know what you have to say. Okay. Can I do this? Sure. It, it won't, it won't take long. It's, it's not anything long, so it won't be kind of laborsome to follow. <laughs> anyway, it was just about how uh, it was sharing an article about how etiquette is going to change because of the, of the virus, right? We're not going to be hugging, handshaking, the you know the fake kiss on the cheeks that they do in parts of Europe, if you follow me, like the more intimate, more uh, more social contact type of etiquette is going to be out. So that's the point of the article. And so I shared this article and I made I made this uh, comment in the in the post and I said American etiquette is superficial. We couldn't care less about each other anyway, and everyone knows it. <laughs> so. <laughs> so the one person commented and said, your world is sad. <laughs> All right. So I replied and I said, America has 28.5% of the world's deaths, but only 4.5% of the world's population. That's sad. Uh, that also proves my point. Okay. So then another person, you know, person two gets on here and makes this comment. This is not another comment from the first person. This is a second person making the second person's first comment. Uh, this person says, you have the most depressing posts of all of my friends. I can't see this every day. You need to get laid. I'll send somebody. I love you. <laughs> Trying to turn that frown upside down. And then my response to that was uh, the people who are depressed are the ones losing their minds because they have to wear uh, a mask or can't go to their favorite hangout and enjoy a big crowd like they normally would. I have no doubt many of these people are getting laid. They are still depressed, uh, just like the ones having a big gathering at Daytona Beach this afternoon. That's the behavior of depressed people, unable to keep it together, uh, unable to keep it together in times of difficulty. Uh, if we really cared about each other, we would agree to wear masks and we would unify behind a national testing system along with the contact tracing and strategic isolation that would make for a safe reopening for the economy. Uh, but for right now, we need to keep our distance from one another. This pandemic is reality, not simply my subjective outlook. And so then the other person uh, to whom I was replying, responds by saying, sounds good. I'm silencing you for 30 days. That's my way of social distancing. See you soon. So what do you think about that? Yeah, that's rather uh, asshole-ish. <clears throat> On the other person's part, right? Right, yeah. Oh, sure. And it's so typical of using this internet, this tool that we can connect with to censor people right? Yeah. and to criticize them. Like how can one single comment tell another person who hasn't actually seen me in 40 years <laughs> about what my world is like? Like that very, you know, your world is sad. 
you can make that inference from this one comment. You know, we're we're both, you know, 50 years old, and I've lived this entire life. You know, your world is sad because you made this one comment about this one thing. <laughs> and the the point is, is like, regardless of what you you would say about the thread, the pattern is the focus doesn't stay on the issue, right? It right. immediately turns into Personally. about the person. Right. Exactly. It's, you know, your world is sad and you need to get light. You know, there is something wrong with you. All right. like, so you're not even engaging what I just said. Yeah, that's why I fucking quit Facebook, man. I couldn't, couldn't stand it. Well, but it's it, but it's so amusing. I mean, and I think it's a, it's a very interesting thing to study. Uh, I guess that's sort of what. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It, yeah, it's too disturbing. My motivation. It was too disturbing for me. It was just like. <laughs> it is pretty disturbing. I mean, yeah. but this is, but it's it. The interesting thing about it is how common this kind of behavior is, and it's a, it's threads like this on Facebook, which is why I say. I don't think that Donald Trump is really all that different from the average American. You know, I think he's a product of a culture. And I don't think that the kind of sociopathic, extremely negative uh, attitude toward the other person um, is limited to a as some people call them, a noisy minority. Right. I mean, some of the comments about the you know hanging of Bashir and effigy in Frankfurt yesterday said, well, it was only a hundred people, <laughs> and you know how many people live in Kentucky? You know, say what uh, four million? Right. And uh, well, okay, but I mean, a hundred isn't two or three either. <laughs> I mean, that's a hundred people, right. and. You can't say that just because the other, you know, three million uh, nine hundred thousand, you know, nine hundred or whatever the exact number is, if you subtract that, you know, what's uh, what's four million minus a hundred? I mean, right. whatever yeah. that number is, you can't just immediately say, well, this is how horrible these one hundred Kentuckians are. Therefore, it must be the case that all of the rest of them are the complete opposite of this. You know, they must be really uh, peace and loving, enlightened, empathetic, <laughs> intelligent people that, that care about others, that, that, that they really have some humanity to them. Well, all right. Uh, what uh, is so the, 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 the predictions? predictions. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. Um, did I follow through on what I was saying about Greg Fisher and, and Al Sharpton? That I, uh, Greg Fisher brought up Muhammad Ali and said, "We just got to fight our way through it." And uh, in response to the Breonna Taylor shooting, I mean, just kind of the what I was saying about Fisher is it's kind of the typical. Um, <clears throat> let's not think about it or have a serious intellectual discussion. Did, let's did, just, what did what did Sharpton say? In, well, I think that. that Sharpton, this is why I wish I could see the footage again, but because I can't remember exactly, uh, and it didn't last long. So, but I think Sharpton was kind of challenging the, the mayor and saying, you know, but your reference to my, I, 
what I think Sharpton said was that Muhammad Ali didn't really like Louisville. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Do you I mean, know anything about that? Well, I mean, he didn't like the racism that he experienced in Louisville. Yeah. Um, but, um, but, you know, I mean, he put his museum there and all that stuff. So I guess he didn't hate it that much. Right. Um, anyway, I just, um, one of my predictions is, uh, I have a feeling that where <clears throat> the, the whole, you know, Brianna Taylor and Louisville thing is going to be out of the news. Mm-hmm. And I guess, um, just going back to the numbers, I would have to say, um, where we'll, we'll definitely be past the 100,000 dead by the time we do our next podcast in June. And did you know that it was not that long ago, I think in March, when the, the sort of the doom of, of this was uh, setting in, that there was actually a somber um, nightly news for uh, nightly news on uh, NBC. Like it was one of the rare moments that uh, the news was actually for adults. <laughs> that it was an adult program. They weren't talking to you like you're a child. Mm. Um, and um, the, it was just like the, you know, the pandemic is here and, and people say that the deaths could be between a hundred thousand and 200,000. Mm-hmm. And that was the thinking of the worst it was going to be. Mm. And this is just beginning you know, this is just beginning and we're going to be over a hundred thousand deaths in the first week of June. So I guess then the, the other prediction, which I would kind of make by way of more asking a question is kind of a long-term thing, which is, will we ever actually have a vaccine for this? I think the average amount of time to get one is four years, but even the most optimistic predictions are, 12 to 18 months. And I heard another person say two years Mm. and man, oh man, like if we don't have a vaccine and we never get a, uh, an effective, you know, national testing, contact tracing and strategic isolation program set up. Um, you gonna be bad, man. I mean, the, the, that's the, that's the thing. Like there's, there's never an effort in American culture to not have the, the most death possible. Like if the choice is between starting a war and not starting one, what choice do Americans make? Yeah. Okay, man. They start, they, they, they start wars. Well, do you have a prediction for us, uh, Dave? Uh, I didn't really didn't think anything more than, yeah, I mean, of course it'll be a hundred thousand. Uh, and yeah, I, I don't know about the, uh, what will happen to definitely with the Breonna Taylor, um, thing is that the city's going to pay out, you know, a bunch of money to the family and the blood money and, will p- be passed, but of course the cops won't be, you know, uh, punished or well, having, that. having Conrad step down was the obligatory kind of token, you know, and then they can yeah. take advantage of that. They can politically spin that to their advantage. Like I said, by putting, I'll bet you anything, a person of color, you know, put a female in there, mm-hmm. you know, put a black female, that'll be a way of, 
Well, why not just get uh, Nellie uh, Ben Deputy, the president of L, let her be the chief of police, too. <laughs> she can be president of L and the Louisville chief of police. Because you've got to save, save some money there. That's a good idea. I mean, that's just how racist <laughs> and sexist L was when they hired. They said, we not only got a woman, we got a woman of color. Like, <laughs> Like the Double. more you know, the more non-white and and non-male you you are, the better a person you are. Um, that's over over the top. Um, any more uh, dumb things? I mean, you've been really good about pinpointing his dementia and general oh, unimpressive brain. <laughs> Any predictions about Biden and oh, how the election is um, going? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I'll uh, yeah, sure, I'll predict he'll he'll make one crazy gaffe uh, again this coming week. We'll have to keep track of that too. Well, anyway, everybody, I'm Dr. Dave Overby, and uh, please tune in next week for the Oblivion podcast, where I will have my uh, token optimistic statement. <laughs> Followed by uh, the rest of my uh, observations for the week, yeah. and, uh, and I am joined David, weekly by yeah David Miller. I'll bring you the wet blanket uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> segment, and uh, so yeah. See everybody next week. All righty. All right, bye. All right, man. Take care.